This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast from AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. I'm Laura Suter. So this week, we're going to be looking at whether markets were buoyed by the news of yet another prime minister opening their moving boxes at number 10, and also what the new prime minister might mean for your money. I'm joined this week by Shares Deputy Editor Tom Sieber. Hi, Laura. Yep. Also this week, we have a market update on the potential collapse of one retailer and the latest antics of Mike Ashley. And we've got Ian Conway from Shares Magazine to give us an update on the US earnings season. And our other guest this week is Ryan Hughes from the AJ Bell investment team, who's going to be helping to guide investors through the current bond market turmoil. But Tom, let's start with that market reaction to Rishi Sunak being appointed as the new prime minister. How did markets take that news? Because they've become so important to the government at the moment, haven't they? Yeah, I think you'd have to say the market took the news that Sunak was headed for number 10 very well. Once Boris Johnson bowed out and that looked an inevitability, you saw gilt yields drop to appreciably lower levels than they'd been at the start of the week. Um, interest rate expectations have come significantly down. The pound is higher against the dollar. So you've got one pound buying about one, um, $1.16 as we speak. And there had been, I don't know if you remember, but discussions about the two currencies reaching parity um, at the very height of the mini budget fallout. Um, though as a side note, side note, it's probably worth pointing out that some of those gains can be explained by weakness in the dollar because there was some iffy US housing data. Um, I think we've discussed before as well that as a stock index, the FTSE 250 is a better indicator than the FTSE 100 because that's much more focused on on international um, business. Um, and that's up more than 4% in five days. So that's for, for any index, that's an impressive move. Um and I think looking at the market reaction, probably the most, I mean, apart from the simple fact that Sunak's come in, the most significant thing that he's done that the market has been pleased about is that he's retained Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor. And that's kind of, you know, created a bit of stability. Um, and clearly there's some tests to come. Um, one of them has been pushed back, uh, leading to sort of last minute script changes for us, but also um, <laughs> a bit of a, a kind of a jolt for the market, I guess, that this... Um, fiscal statement will now be a full autumn statement in mid-November rather than on Halloween. But there's not been a big move. I think the market accepts that, you know, they might want to take their time a little bit and, and work out exactly what they want to do. Um, now, obviously, sort of feeding on from this, mortgage rates were the focus for many people after that mini budget when rates really shot up. So what are they doing now, Laura? Yeah, there's some good news there in that they've started to drop slightly. So what we saw was this big spike in mortgage rates um, post that mini budget and in the aftermath. And then they kind of stayed stubbornly high. So while we talked, you and I talked last week on the podcast about how markets were slightly recovering and how some measures had gone back to kind of pre mini budget levels, those mortgage rates were still remaining high what we're starting to see is that they are starting to fall back a bit so they're going in the right direction but very slowly and very gradually so we're still at around six and a half percent for a two-year fix so still dramatically higher than they were previously but you know starting to drop down a bit which i think is is good news for any home buyers out there absolutely yeah um and obviously, so we've had this mini budget. We've had the subsequent U-turns from new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. It's it's very early days, of course. But what are we expecting from Rishi Sunak now? 
It's so tricky, isn't it? It's, I mean, yeah. on the basis that this script also included us talking about what he might talk about next Monday, and then that got moved in the intervening yeah. hour before we recorded, it feels kind of impossible to guess what the government's going to be doing at the moment. But that's not going to stop me trying. So yeah, I think your, give it your best shot. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think what was interesting is when the government made that announcement that it was pushing that fiscal statement back by a couple of weeks, um, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt said that he was willing to make potentially embarrassing decisions for prior governments. And so I think what that refers to is there's the ability to undo some of the things that that previous leaders still of the Conservative Party, but previous prime ministers have done. And so that gives us a little inkling of maybe what might happen. Um, So one of those obviously would be national insurance. Um, That was one of the changes that has now formed a very small legacy that Liz Truss has in terms of the changes she made in her time in Parliament. Um, And what she did was get rid of that health and social care levy that was adding on the extra cost to national insurance rates. Um, Which was seen as idea in the first place as well. Exactly. And so there's kind of an open door there for Rishi Sunak to revert back to his original plan. That would mean, if he changed it in the current tax year, that would mean the fifth iteration of national insurance rates and thresholds in a single tax year, which I think is borderline farcical, but I'm not going to rule it out. What he could also do is leave it alone for this tax year, but raise rates from April onwards. Um, I think payroll departments around the country who've had to deal with these constant changes this year would like the slight breathing space of it being implemented from April, but I'm not sure if he's got much consideration for them. Um, So that is one change that we could see those national insurance rates going back up again. Um, Another thing that Liz Truss kind of undid. Um, Well, she reversed, then U-turned, and then I don't know where we are, but the income tax rates. So Rishi Sunak had previously pledged that that the basic rate was going to drop from 20% to 19% from April 2024. We've since had the um, new chancellor say that that's off the table indefinitely until government finances improve. Rishi Sunak could decide to, to bring it back and bring that 2024 deadline back. However, that doesn't really feel like the direction the government's going in at the moment. What we've now got is talk of of tax raises, of trying to plug that that gap in in the government's budget. And so cutting tax rates, I think, is probably not something that's likely to be hugely on the agenda. No. Um, And then the other uh, big thorny issue that Rishi Sunak has to tackle is energy bills. Um, So we've now got the energy price guarantee ending in April next year and the government working on a replacement system to it that's going to be, we think, more targeted at vulnerable people at low income households. In his, interestingly, in his initial leadership campaign, Rishi Sunak um, pledged to do just that, basically. He pledged to target help at vulnerable people, but also to remove the VAT on energy bills for everyone. So that was kind of giving a small giveaway to everyone and then much more targeted and larger support um, for more vulnerable people. So that might be the kind of model that that we see him sticking to for that. It's probably also worth saying that the the decision on that doesn't need to necessarily be made in this autumn statement. The government signalled the direction it's going in and it's got a while until April. So what's probably likely is they defer that decision. Get down the road. Yeah, that makes sense. 
And what about triple lock and benefits uprating? That's obviously been in, in focus recently. And then that's another area of kind of a lot of committals from the government and then U-turns and then deliberation. Um, previously, Liz Truss committed to keeping the triple lock. However, Rishi Sunak was obviously um, the Chancellor when the triple lock was scrapped for that year. So I think the fact that he's now Prime Minister throws that slightly more into question again. Um, and it's going to be quite a meaty rise if they do stick to the triple lock. It'd be around a 10% increase in the state pension. Yeah. And if they maintain the triple lock, then that also opens the questions of what they do with other benefits for working age people um, and the calls of kind of intergenerational unfairness if they raise the state pension by 10%, but raise benefits by a lesser amount. And so that's another area where I think we will we'll definitely get some clarity in the autumn statement I shouldn't have said definitely there really because that's a foolish thing to say at the moment but (laughs) can't be definite about too much um just thinking as well kind of about other potential changes that I think is first PMQ Sunak kind of more or less confirmed at the dispatch box that the fracking ban will come back into place which obviously is not a really a fiscal measure but I suppose is is one change that that might be expected yeah and has been such a such a hot topic and i think you know aside from the the tax cuts and the personal tax implications what we're really going to get in that fiscal update is the report from the obr a much more kind of economicy focused view of the country's health and finances yeah. followed up by the government's plan of kind of how to pay for for this yeah i mean i suppose one sort of glimmer of of light or you know one positive thing at the moment is that because they've talked tough and because guilt yields have gone back down government borrowing costs have gone down and that means the size of the sort of gap they've got to fill might fall so they you know they might be able to kind of wield a big stick talk about kind of cuts but not have to actually be quite as aggressive when it comes to it because they've sort of bought themselves a bit of bit of space by by doing that it's just quite such a switch for the electorate to go from kind of tax tax cuts handed out to everyone to yeah. potential tax raises is I think how they sell that into the public is going to be interesting. Yeah, good luck to them. Um... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move away from politics for a moment and go back to kind of the rest of the market and what's been happening in other companies' news. Um, so what big things has been happening this week, Tom? Yeah, so there's been a bit going on kind of in the retail sector. Um, we've had Made.com, which joined the market just over a year ago um, and is now looking in serious danger of, of actually going bust because a rescue plan for business collapsed this week, um, they confirmed. And they've kind of, as a sort of, well, a temporary measure for the time being, they've suspended new customer orders. So it doesn't doesn't look too good. Um I mean, Made had its own specific problems, but there there are some definite kind of negative takeaways for the wider retail sector from from what's happened. Um, I mean, just to sort of give a bit of background on on Made.com and how it ended up where it where it is now. So that you've obviously got a very weak consumer backdrop, and particularly for sort of larger ticket items like sofas, kind of furniture, um, and that meant it, it's had to sort of discount more aggressively to temp shoppers to to spend um with it online and that's hit margins and operating operating costs have continued to go up in the background as well 
um, it built up its inventories um, it basically in order to improve customer experience because I think anybody who's bought a sofa in the last few years knows that you, you sometimes have a very long waiting list and I suppose it was trying to counter that a bit but the timing of that has been awful because they did it just as consumer confidence was weakening and that's meant that it's had a lot of working capital tied up at, at just the wrong time um, and then just to sort of add to um, the things it's had to deal with that you've had the disruption to supply chains um, and increasing freight costs and stuff like that. So, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a big list of sort of challenges, um, some of which are kind of specific, more specific to the company, some of which apply sort of across the board. Um, but I think it's not the first and it almost certainly won't be the last company to come a cropper in what is, where it continues to be a sort of pretty brutal environment for the retail space. And I see that Mike Ashley is back in the headlines, everyone's favourite retail character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, the retail kingpin. Um, he's, yeah, yeah, not, the backdrop is not putting him off from his usual wheeling and dealing. So, I mean, I guess in some ways it's probably inspired it. So he's kind of fairly fresh from stepping back from the day-to-day running of, of Fraser's, his kind of retail empire, um, used to be called sort of Sports Direct. Um, but now obviously owns quite a few different um, retail chains. And he's snapped up a 5% stake in ASOS. Um, so the the online kind of fast fashion, as it's put, retailer. Um, and he's also increased an already significant holding in, in the fashion brand Hugo Boss. Um, he's using options there basically to avoid having to launch a full takeover of, of Hugo Boss. Um, but in terms of what he's up to with ASOS in particular, there's been speculation he might seek some kind of a partnership. Um, so that could involve them selling each other's brands or sort of sharing distribution. Um, so he's, yeah, he's clearly very alive at the moment to any opportunities that might be created in the sort of, in what is quite a volatile kind of retail backdrop. We've got a bumper earnings season in the US at the moment with 45% of the S&P 500 index by market cap reporting this week. I mean, you'd think they'd spread that out a bit. But anyway, among the 165 companies reporting are the five big tech giants of Apple, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft and Alphabet. But we've drafted in Ian Conway, the company's editor at Shares Magazine, who's no doubt had a pretty busy week to fill us in on what we need to know. Hi, Laura. Hi. Hi. As you say, very, very busy week. Um, I mean, we had about 100 companies last week. I think there's 100 companies this week alone reporting. Um, Up until last week, things were looking fine. Most companies had beaten forecasts. About 70% were beating forecasts and S&P was up 5%. So it was all looking good. Unfortunately, Alphabet and Microsoft last night let the side down a little bit. What was the key negative takeaways from those two then, Ian? Different... It's different with Alphabet, Tom, because um, Alphabet obviously owns Google and YouTube and um, revenues for the quarter disappointed and most of it's down to a slowdown in digital advertising revenues. So sales for the third quarter are up 6% instead of 9% for Alphabet. Doesn't sound a lot, but that's the slowest growth rate since 2013 and it's also the third time this year that they've disappointed. So the core search advertising business was slow and YouTube ad revenues were actually slightly down. That's the first time that's happened since they started reporting numbers. So shares went down 7% after market. The expectation is obviously that they'll go down again today when they reopen. Chief Executive Sundar Pichai said it was a tough time for digital advertising, but the market's takeaway is YouTube is starting to feel the heat from competitors like TikTok 
Spotify also reported yesterday, again, a similar story. Advertising spending is down, so losses increased. And last week, Snap was smashed down, shares were smashed down 28% after it also reported disappointing advertising revenue. So it's a common theme. And then on Microsoft, a bit of a different story. Microsoft disappointed. Uh, it was a combination of slower laptop and PC sales and therefore slower sales of Windows products. Um, that was the slowest rate in five years. But they also talked about a slowdown in cloud computing. Now, that's important for Amazon, which reports tomorrow night, because obviously the Amazon Web Services arm has been a very big contributor to earnings. So, again, Microsoft down 7% last night, expected to open lower today. Um, it hasn't all been bad news, though, as you suggested um, earlier on, has it? So I guess there has, you know, last week there was some positive positive news in terms of yeah around 70% of companies have beaten forecasts there was a real fear that third quarter was going to be the quarter when lots of companies would start to warn but actually um, the banks and credit card companies they're all saying that the the consumer is absolutely fine I think the big worry was the consumer with rising inflation um, that uh, people would batten down the hatches but um, it's actually been a reasonably good quarter Um, JP Morgan, uh, chief executive, said consumers have got solid balance sheets. For example, um, American Express, um, transactions are up nearly 20% in the third quarter. $400 billion of turnover. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. It gives you an idea of the scale of the business. Um, And what's really interesting is that he was really surprised at spending on travel and entertainment. You might think that squeezed consumers would be using their credit cards to pay rent or bills, but actually it's travel and entertainment. Um, and in, and not just in the US, international spending on travel and entertainment was back above pre-pandemic levels. That's quite surprising, isn't it, when you think about the kind of cost of living crunch that we'd be expecting to hear, although you only have to go out into some city in the UK to realise that people are still definitely out and about eating and drinking and and having fun. Funny you should say that, actually, Laura, yeah, because Coca-Cola and Pepsi also raised their forecasts and um, Chipotle Mexican Grill, the restaurant chain, beat forecasts. So everybody's eating burritos and chucking down the busy drinks. (laughs) You've got to take your pleasures where you can get them, haven't you? So. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's a bit of a tougher time for industrial companies, particularly sort of commodity makers like Alcoa, which makes aluminium, and Dow Chemical, um, because they're getting a sort of triple squeeze. They've got higher material and energy costs, they've got higher labour costs, and they're facing a, a very strong dollar, which is eroding international earnings for them. So... It's um, it's tough. I mean, to be fair, even the banks and Amex have increased their provisions for bad loans. So Q3, okay. But as Jamie Diamond said, you know, we're hoping for the best, but we're prepared for bad outcomes. Now, um, bonds have been in the news a lot recently, and we've covered the turmoil in the UK government bond market on the podcast before. But we've had a question in from a listener, Philip Kelly, who wants us to help unwind the current bond market mania for investors who own bonds via funds. We're going to tackle it in two parts. In a future episode, we'll talk to a bond fund manager about how they've navigated the current volatile situation. But today we're going to talk to Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell's investment team for some guidance for bond fund investors at the moment. So thanks a lot for joining us today, Ryan. Thanks for having me. 
Um, we've obviously had a lot about the bond market recently. I think maybe it would be good to just start if you could just give us a little run through of what's been happening and that volatility in the market before we dive into some of the issues that investors might have. Absolutely. Bond funds and the bond market have been in the news uh, for much of the year and certainly over the last uh, the last four or five weeks. And this is all to do with interest rates going up, not just in the UK, but also in Europe and the US and around the world. Uh, and when interest rates go up, bond prices fall uh, and interest rates have been going up rapidly or the expectation of interest rate rises has been increasing rapidly. And this has caused quite a lot of volatility on the bond market and prices to go down quite rapidly. And so when we think about investors, generally, they will probably be invested in bonds through funds rather than owning the bonds directly themselves. So how are they best to handle that current volatility? You're absolutely right. Investors will own a lot of these types of funds, I think, or types of investment in their portfolio. And maybe they don't directly directly own a bond fund themselves, but they might own maybe some kind of multi-asset fund that has exposure to fixed interest and bonds. And so they will maybe have experienced some of these issues uh, regardless. I think what we are seeing is a lot of volatility, and that volatility is coming from uncertainty uh, as to where interest rates go from here uh, and what the next government uh, will do in terms of the economic plan and their borrowing uh, and their tax raising, uh, etc. And maybe we'll hear more about that over the next couple of weeks from whoever is the new uh, prime minister uh, there. So it is difficult because these bond funds have gone down a lot already. And, and in many respects, sometimes the worst thing you can do as an investor is crystallise those losses because you've locked in the losses there and you've then got to find something to reinvest into to try and recoup that money. But the expectation of future interest rate rises is kind of what's priced into bonds now. So in the UK, we're talking about interest rates going from in the roughly around 2.25% at the moment, up to maybe 5% during the latter part of 2023. So that sounds like quite a steep increase. And it is. And that's what bonds have priced in uh, for the next year and why they're prices have fallen back. So a lot of the bad news as it was, as it was already priced into these bond funds uh, here. So it it is, um, you you kind of might be a little bit a case of closing the stable door after the horse has bolted, uh, if you are thinking about exiting uh, these funds that have certainly struggled in the last few months. And also, if you own via a fund, um, the benefit of bond funds is that they can invest in lots of different types of bonds. Obviously, the majority of what we've been hearing about is UK government bonds, and that being the kind of most volatile area. So how have other bonds fared during that time as well? Yeah, these issues haven't just been contained to UK government bonds, or indeed government bonds anywhere around the world, US, Europe, etc. Because corporate bonds, so those bonds issued by companies, have gone down a lot as well. And if we look at the figures year to date, uh, as we're recording this uh, today, so UK government bonds are down about 25% uh, year to date. Uh, Corporate bonds are down still over 20%. Uh, year to date, and even high yield bonds, which are less sensitive to interest rate rises, are still down around 13% uh, year to date. So you've had a little bit of protection from investing in if funds have been investing in other parts of the bond market, but there really hasn't been anywhere to hide in fixed interest 
during this year. And if you're invested in longer dated bonds, that is those bonds that the government has issued for a very long period of time over many decades, then they fared even worse. So the the bonds that have got over 25 years to mature are down around 50% this year, which is a staggering number, given economic theory would tell us that these types of investments are among the safest that there should be available. Does that mean that the ability for bond funds to kind of mitigate some of the losses by investing elsewhere has been taken away slightly if everything's gone down and been volatile at the same time? It does depend on the type of bond fund. So if you've got a fund that's solely focused on UK corporate bonds, yes, you can diversify by company, but on the whole, the market is down. So there hasn't really been any hiding place. There are other types of bond fund called a strategic bond fund that has quite a lot more flexibility uh, in how they invest. They can invest all across the different types of bond market, and some of them can invest overseas in different currencies. Now, where they've been able to do that, if they've been owning bonds denominated in US dollars, they've actually fared a little bit better because whilst the bond has gone down in value, the value of that bond when you convert it from US dollars back to sterling has actually gone up a lot as sterling has weakened. So those types of funds have managed to mitigate some of these losses. But I think when you see the scale of the uh, the falls across the bond market, wherever you are pretty much in the world, it really has been very, very difficult to protect capital uh, throughout the whole of this year. Okay, so I guess if you're in a if you're invested in a bond fund right now and you're committed to staying in it, you don't want to kind of sell and lock in those losses like you talked about earlier. Are there any checks that you should be making of that particular fund or the fund manager to make sure it's staying on track? Absolutely. I think as ever, it's really important to make sure that any of your investments remain suitable for your own circumstances and your own risk profile. So it may well be people's own financial situations are changing right now with with the economy. So make sure that those investments are, uh, say, remain suitable, remain appropriate for your financial plan. Um, One thing to look at with a bond fund, perhaps one of the most key areas is to look at a figure, a a number that's called duration, because duration uh, is a measure of how sensitive the fund is to interest rate rises and interest rate risk. The longer the duration, the higher the risk if interest rates go up. So if there's one figure you are going to look at and you own a bond fund, take a look at the duration um, because the shorter, the lower the number, the less sensitive it is to interest rate rises. The longer the number, the more sensitive it is to interest rate rises. Now, one is not necessarily better than the other. It just is a different measure of risk. Uh, And therefore, if you're in a longer duration fund, you are essentially carrying more interest rate risk. Now, you might conclude, if your circumstances are such, that you're not comfortable carrying so much interest rate risk if the expectation is for interest rates to go up much further than the market currently believes. Thanks so much for that. And we'll have the second part of this Bond deep dive coming up. So definitely look out for that in future episodes. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks very much. Now, finally, for this week's pod, we've got some news with a deadline for all those people who bulk buy their stamps. Yeah, which I can't remember the last time I used an actual stamp, but people do still use them. Maybe that maybe I'm a bad friend. I just (laughs) I never said friends birthday cards, but like nephews, nieces, that kind of thing. True. Good point. Um, 
anyway, lots of people do bulk buy stamps, particularly businesses as well, um, to try to get ahead on cost increases as well by buying them before they go up in price. But Royal Mail is now sent out a helpful reminder that any stamps that don't have a barcode on them have to be used by the 31st of January. So it's brought in a new style of stamp um, that kind of has a barcode down the side um, and people need to use those by the 31st of January otherwise they're no longer going to be allowed to be used now if you've really gone heavy on the bulk buying and you've got lots of stamps that you're not going to be able to use in that time you can swap them out for newer ones free of charge um you just need to go to the post office or um there's a form that you can fill in with royal mail um but just a heads up for anyone who has got lots of stamps at home Great. Thanks, Laura. And thanks a lot for joining us this week. Please do subscribe and review the podcast wherever you listen. It helps other people to find the podcast. And if you have any questions you want covered in a future episode, just email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll do our best to respond. And apart from that, we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.